0: Welcome back to Torah on the Go. Last episode, we talked about why read the Bible, how to read the Bible. And this time, we're going to turn to the book of Genesis in particular, which is actually the topic for us for this entire year. So we're going to engage in Safer Breishit, the book of Genesis, both on a weekly basis in terms of picking parshiot, sections of parshiot that we want to talk about. And also, we're going to talk about big topics that affect us all and kind of reflect on the motifs and the themes of Genesis and how they prove relevant in our lives today. I want to welcome my friend and partner, Rabbi Feinstein, to this episode of Torah on the Go, and I want to throw the question to you. How do you think Genesis actually begins the partnership between God and humanity, this kind of divine dialogue that has evolved through the ages? That's a wonderful question. So let's begin with the beginning, shall we? It's a very good place to start.
1: It's always a good place to (laughs) start, which is interesting, by the way, because most books don't begin at the beginning. You know, most books actually begin somewhere in the middle. This book actually wants to begin at the beginning. But we know something now that our ancestors didn't know about the beginning. See, in the middle of the 19th century, archaeologists discovered the great myths of the ancient Near East in in excavating uh, the areas of Lower Iraq. They discovered the cuneiform, the clay tablets that contain the mythologies of the ancient Near East, they confound the bedtime stories that Abraham was told. And the story of creation in those narratives tells you something critical about our Bible. The the narrative goes something like this. In the beginning, there were two, the great sky goddess Tiamat and the great earth goddess Ea. And they mingled their waters, the sky and the ground, and out of them were born all the gods, gods of thunder and lightning and light and dark and war and peace and fertility, barrenness. And the gods, like children everywhere, filled the world with noise. And Mama Tiana got sick of the noise, and she decided she was going to destroy all of her children. And that word got leaked to the gods, and they met in council, and they asked, who is going to fight Mama. And it was Marduk, god of thunder and lightning, who rose up and offered to do that if he could be crowned king of the gods. And so they went to war. And in the cuneiform tablets, there's several tablets go on about the war. And at the end, Marduk jams a lightning bolt into Mama Tiamat's mouth and throws another into her belly and destroys her and opens her up and puts half of her in the sky, which is why the sky is blue like water and half beneath the earth, why there's water beneath the earth. And then the gods start to party in victory. And they discover that Mama did all the shopping and there's no food. So they come back to their new king, to Marduk, and they say, give us someone who will give us food. And Marduk takes the mud of the sea, mud of the earth, mud of the the river actually, and creates the human being. That was the story. And then came along this narrative. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. Comparatively, it's a very dull story. There's no violence. There's no sex. There's no desire. There's no appetites. There's none of the wonderful cinematic quality of the ancient Middle Eastern, Near Eastern, Mesopotamian narratives. But that's exactly the point. Because the Mesopotamian narratives tell us that the world is a place of conflict, that the world is a place which will destroy your dreams, that the gods are jealous and capricious and arbitrary, and that you don't have a chance. The Genesis narrative comes to tell you that there's room to dream in this world. What's the most important word in the opening narrative of Genesis? Vayar Elohim Kitov. God sees that it was good. The idea that the world can be good that this is a place where we can dream, where we can plan, where we can imagine, where we can create, that we come into the world as partners with God in the creation of a world, that is a revolutionary idea in human consciousness, and we still haven't quite caught up with it.
0: So almost from the outset, I think that the Marduk narrative, it's not Jewish for two reasons. Number one, there's many, many gods at play. Number two, it's a story about children standing up to their mother, and that's not a Jewish story. <laughs> so let's start in the, the. So when you when you look at the transition between other cultures' perception of how the world began and our culture, and our people's story of how the world began, I can tell two things from the from the Hebrew verse that you just quoted, Brashit bara Elohim et shemaim vetar. It's number one, our God is a God of creation, from the very first act that God does. God contributes order to the world. God contributes something to the world, and that should not be discounted by us. That we think of the divine force that runs through the narrative of humanity as one that encourages creation, mm-hmm. that encourages thought, that encourages innovation. That's not, that should not be lost on us. And the second is, is that there's no date the tanakh is not concerned the book of genesis when you say well is genesis about genesis is it about the history of the world the first 11 chapters of genesis which is really a kind of universal story right before we before we get to the to the close up on the jewish people and the jewish narrative of abraham and sarah and and the beginning of monotheism the first 11 chapters of genesis isn't concerned about dating any of it mm-hmm. that's not what the story is about there's a certain Poetry and artistry in the beauty of the telling of the story. If if it wasn't, it would it would appear a lot like the Book of Kings and the Second Book of Kings and Isaiah and Jeremiah. The ties to to tie certain events of the of the narrative to the reign of the king in the seventh year of King blah 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 in in the city of so and so. Right. That that's not how Genesis. That's not how the Sefer begins. Breshit begins. Brachit bara Elohim. In the beginning, God created, or in the beginning of God's creation, however we want to understand that sentence, there was a force that willed creation into existence.
1: Yeah, not that willed creation into existence, that wills creation into existence. The reason there's no date is because it didn't happen then, it's happening now.
0: It's very Hasidic of you. You
1: No, it's true. The story is a contemporary story. It's myth with a capital M. Myth with a capital M must be read in the present tense, what you said first, which is so important. It is always a world coming to be. It is always a world of open possibilities. It is always a world in which you are invited to dream. That's the part that's godly within us. And that's the part that's divine within the text. And that's what I so want to give our children. I want them to know that there's dreams are possible in this world, and they're not. They're not futile. It's not just a a, a self-serving kind of a fantasy. But I want you to look forward to something, and I want you to hope.
0: So I'm going to segue us over from this kind of sense of hope and optimism to the kind of biggest question that lays in the subtext of the of the creation narrative, and that is. How do we reconcile Genesis and science in this way? So we both have a friend, one of my teachers, Rabbi Elliot Dorf, mm, Great man. A great man, a great, great teacher great who likes to align the book of Genesis to the Big Bang. Mm. And if you do that, especially if you do that according to according to, uh, uh, to Rabbi Dorf, you begin with this kind of burst of light and this unfolding process over time. When you can say one day is not a day, they're actually supposed to be stages, not days, and this, that, and the other. You can align the narrative of Genesis to the narrative of science. Maimonides, at the very end of his work, Maura Nebuchim, talks about how perhaps Genesis reflects the creation of the world. Perhaps it gets some of the creation of the world right. Perhaps it gets none of it right, Doesn't doesn't align with science at all. And he gives his recommendations depending on which actually ends up being the outcome as science develops. Mm -hmm. Are these two stories at odds? Is the story to explain how the world came to be scientifically at odds with the story of creation in the Tanakh?
1: You know, they once asked the Lubavitcher Rebbe uh, of blessed memory that question about how how does he explain the fact that uh, the museum is full of dinosaur bones, you know? If the world is only 57, 184 years old, how do you have these, you know, 50, 20 million, 20 million year old, uh, 20 million dollar, 20 million year old dinosaur bones in the Museum of Natural History? And he said, yeah, God put them into the world to fool these scientists. That was such a wonderfully silly answer. And and I know that he doesn't believe it because he's a much more scientific soul than that. They answer different questions. First of all, there is a certain congruence. I mean, the basic notion that the world is a world of order and science comes to reveal to us what is the deep order of the world. And you can see a certain congruence in the notion that God creates species of life and uses evolution as the tool to create species of life. There's a certain congruence between the two. But deep down, these are very two very different stories because they're two very different answers to two very different questions. All right? The question of science is how did all this come to be? How did all this come to be? And the question of religion, the question of the Bible, is how should I be thinking about this? How shall I value this? How shall I value this? It doesn't threaten my dignity as a human being to know that I evolved from primates 250 million years ago. I'm sorry, 250,000 years ago. You know, that we, that, that we are at, at, at heart, we share 99 point something percent of our chromosomes with primates. Um, doesn't, doesn't affect my dignity as a human being because I'm more than that part of myself. It's the part that's more that's the part that gives me imagination and wisdom and holiness. And it's the part that's more that gives each individual human being ultimate value. And that's what the Torah talks about when it talks about salam Elohim, the image of God within each human being. How do I think about this world? And if I think about this world as a gift of the creator, then I'm going to treat it very differently than if I think about the world as just possible, just happening, just showing up. I think about the world as the gift of the creator, and I have a sense of responsibility to care for it, to protect it. I have a sense of awe and wonder at the things that I find around me and a sense of reverence for life about me. It answers a different question. If science answers the question, how did all this come to be? The Torah comes to answer the question, how should you be thinking about it? How should you be valuing it? What is its valence in terms of responsibility, commitment, devotion, dedication,
0: and care? So I'll use a, another teaching by the Lubavitcher Rebbe to counter to show that he that it was maybe a moment of silliness. Because I'm reading a book right now by Jonathan Sachs, by the late, great rabbi also Jonathan great, Sachs. great, great soul. And he wrote a kind of gloss on the Lubavitcher Rebbe's teachings called Torah Study. And in the book, he talks about one of the Rebbe's teachings, which is, why is it that God began with light in Brasheed? Because if everything, if, if, if the explanations is that this was done in stages to kind of set the table for human beings, God could have split the waters first in darkness. We could have split, God could have split the waters first and then only added light to prepare for animals. The, the, the order in the first few days is not necessarily, you know, and if this is startling for you to think about, I, I apologize right now. You can pull your car over onto the side of the road and think about it a little bit. That might be safer. But perhaps the light of the first day is not about light itself. That was the teaching. The idea of light, bringing light into the world, is the idea that the most important contribution is actual spirituality, we're not defined solely by our bodies. The world, what makes this planet amazing, wondrous in nature, is that there is a spirit that runs through this world that connects everything in it. And that light that is God's creation in the very first moments of the text that goes on for chapters upon chapters upon chapters upon chapters, teaches us that in fact, God adds the most important thing First, so that we can learn ourselves that we need to bring and contribute our most important to the table as early as we can to value the nature of spirituality to na- value the light within one another. You need light. The Hebrew word selam, Elohim, that that uh, Rabbi Feinstein just mentioned. You need light to make selam. If you understand the Hebrew, right? Right. Let selam is to make a photograph in modern Hebrew, or nice. to make a photocopy. Yeah. You can't bring the divine image of God and drop it into you into into the human soul into people's hearts and souls without light already existing. That's the way photography works. It's also the way divine photography works, mm. apparently. And I think it's a beautiful teaching. It is. I, it, there's there's a there's the flip side of that teaching is I heard Rabbi Sachs talk about a, a midrash that actually starts Brashid Rabbah. and the midrash goes like this. God is unsure how to begin the world. Mm. And so the beginning of Breishit Rabbah, the, the great Midrashah collection, says that in this kind of moment of uncertainty, what does God do? He opens the Torah. Right. God opens the Torah and reads, Breishit Bara Elohim et Hashemayim V'taretz, that God begins God's creation of the world and God follows the instruction manual. Mm. And what's fascinating to me about that is what that intonates is the Torah pre exists the world. Mm, Right. The Torah is the instruction manual that even God uses. Mm. And here we are reading a text, then in Sefer Breishit in Genesis. That was a text that was even used according to this legend, according to this Agadic Midrash, according to this kind of unfolding storytelling nature of the Jewish people and our leaders. This Midrash comes to tell us that we must follow this text because in fact, God actually followed the text. That's a
1: beautiful teaching. That, those are both beautiful teachings. I, I, I think I, I would go just a little bit different than Sachs. I think if you ever think about how any how we create anything, right the, the way that we create anything is we get an idea. Now what's an idea? Just think about what an idea is. Right? You're, and usually they come in strange moments, right? And when you're sitting in the study trying to think of something, it doesn't come. It's when you go for a walk, when you're taking a shower, when you're speaking with your, your family, and suddenly ah, oh, I know what it is. I know what it is that I want. I know what it is that I want to create. I know, I can see it already. That's what comes into being at the very beginning. The divine idea of a world. The divine idea of the world. And, and that's given to us as a gift later on in the words of Torah. The words of Torah is the divine gift of a of a world, but placed into human language, which is hard because you've got to code it in a certain way, right? But what does it mean to have a, an idea of what the world is when 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 we when we, we got married, we 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 turned to a human being and said, "I I, I need to live with you. I want to be part of your life and create a future." It's sort of a very vague but beginning idea of what that's like when we create a project in the world, the divine idea of a world, okay, and then each of us has that has a we can tap that and tap that energy, a divine idea of the world, and I'm part of it, and I'm a partner in creating it. That's how the thing gets started. I, that's how I, what I think the beginning is. It's really a phenomenology, a description of how we all create stuff. Because creation is an interesting process when you think about it. There was nothing, and then there's something. There was, there was, there was in, in, inchoate, chaotic uh, orga, you know, stuff around, and it gets organized into a form and a fashion that's, uh, that's quite
0: remarkable. Amazing. And and I'm inspired every time I read the creation narrative uh, chapter one of the book of Genesis. And I think to myself that we talked a little bit about this last time. Other cultures must have read our text. And thought. These people are nuts. (laughs) These people are nuts. They think there's one singular force. How does that make any sense? That light and dark and water and sky and animals and people are all somehow bound up within the same organizational structure, with the same conception, with the same spirituality. And I would argue that that's what lends us a sense of responsibility for one another. Right, right. And that's what people don't understand when they read the text is the text is in so many ways it sets out a pretext. For our motive, mode of thinking about the world is in the framework of responsibility.
1: Mm-hmm. And it, and it, and it, it again, it goes, we, we started again, it, it gives you permission to dream. I mean, the God of that first chapter of Genesis has a sort of, I hate to say this because it sounds sacrilegious or blasphemous, but there's a sort of childlike delight that everything God creates, he says, (laughs) goody, isn't that cool? Watch, look, alligators, cool, right? Ducks, cool, trees, cool. And then people, he says, oh, wow, I created people, right? It's, It's this sense of... Each thing brings such wonder. Um, I have a granddaughter now, you know, so I get to experience the whole world over again, which is so cool, and take her to the lake and walk along the lake and she looks at the ducks and the swans and the geese and you get to see the world through a two-year-old's eyes. It's this, oh, look at that. That pure childlike sense of wonder, immune from all the cynicism and the the, the antagonism that the world impresses upon us as we get older, that's what that first chapter of Genesis gives us back.
0: You know, uh, Rabbi Feinstein is enjoying perhaps the best stage of life, the the grandparent, the the grandchild stage of life. I'm right. perhaps engaged in the most frustrating stage of life. Teenagers. Teenagers, yes. trying to raise We're teenagers. Teenagers. And so—
1: Except every, your kids are really wonderful. My, my kids are wonderful. I want to say, kids, despite <laughs> what he might say, that the Leibowitz children are remarkably wonderful
0: kids. <laughs> they are wonderful. Thank you. But I was going to say that as, as a parent of a teenager— you're dealing with a demographic that just wants to say everything is terrible. Yes, nothing is impressive. Everything sucks. Everything. Right. That's the word of the, that's the word in our house. Or, or the worst and
1: one is they roll their eyes. And go whatever. Whatever. Right. <laughs> exactly. Whatever.
0: Nothing. Nothing is impressive. Nothing is inspiring. And that's why when you finally bring them someplace in the world, mm. and they smile or they they say this is awesome. Right. It makes everything worthwhile. Or
1: late at night. After a whole day of whatever, Dad, right? Or this sucks, or I'm so bored, you lie down with the kid to say goodnight, and the kid says to you, you know, that was really cool.
0: That's it. That it makes everything that worthwhile.
1: Real. I want to tell you that was really cool. You said, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you said, no, forget about what I said. That was really cool. That
0: <laughs> that That is, I would say that that spirit, that, that, that moment of... Inspiration. Kitov. Kitov. The, that's Kitov Kitov exactly right.
1: Elohim Kitov. It was so good.
0: It makes everything worthwhile in life. What are we going to talk about next week? Next week, we're going to talk about the transition from creation into people. A kind of big topic, not necessarily Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, but the idea that people needed to be part of the story not only as readers, but actually as characters, partners in this process. We invite you to join us to learn with us, and we invite you to look at our website, www.vbs.org. We have a section where you can find all of these episodes, and you can find all of the online offerings that Rabbi Feinstein and I teach on a regular basis. We hope that you engage with us with VBS, with the entire clergy, with all of our educational initiatives. We look forward to learning with you next time. Torah on the go. Drive safe.